Good morning. Kids, we are going to, am I on? Can you hear me now? I'm getting yeses and noes. It's going to be fun. Uh, kids, we're going to introduce a new series and read a scripture, so hang with us just two or three more minutes, and then you can go to your uh, classes. Uh, everybody else will be in Ephesians 2 today, so if you go ahead and turn there, that would be great. If you're using a Bible from the chairs... Underneath the chairs, we're on page 674 in those Bibles, 674. Um, if you're new with us here, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. And our normal uh, custom in terms of uh, sermons is to walk through a book in the Bible section by section by section and just work our way through the whole thing, uh, however long it takes. There are a few times a year that we do something in which we're trying to address particular issues, and so we'll go to passages that teach on those issues and uh, help us think through something of particular timeliness. And we're going to be doing that uh, the next two weeks in a series that we're calling uh, Scandalous. And just a moment of, of explanation about what that is, and then we'll look at the text together. Uh, you might be accustomed to thinking of the gospel itself as something that's scandalous. And what I mean by that is, it is rather shocking that God would give up himself for sinners. Right? That ought never to reach a point where we don't think of that as shocking, as rather scandalous, that uh, a holy God would give himself for a sinful people meeting in his, himself the penalty for sin that we deserve. That, that element of the gospel story is probably, for those of us who have known Christ a while, scandalous. But there are also scandalous changes that the gospel brings about in the life of a Christian. And that element is what we're going to spend the next two weeks uh, thinking about uh, together in particular, the scandalous ways the gospel changes people, how we move from self, self, uh, selfishness to selflessness, for example. That's what we'll be considering today. So we'll find this in Ephesians 2. And Micah, why don't you come, buddy? Micah's going to read for us. What is that? I didn't get any cheers. All right, buddy. Read for us? Sure. Okay. Let me turn it on. There you go. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace who have been saved and raised up us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Awesome. Thank you. Would you like to pray for us? Sure. Okay. Dear God, I pray as the church studies this passage and the book of Ephesians today and thanks that everyone could come today. And I pray that if they're not believers yet, they would become believers. And I pray that you would teach them as they study this passage and Ephesians 2 that they would understand what's happening during while they're reading it. And I pray that after they would have have good like conversations about it and like say like what was their favorite part or what they thought was interesting. Amen. Amen. Thank you, son. You want to lead the kids now out to uh, class? Sure. Great, buddy. <laughs> We might have the wrong Newkirk up here. <laughs> um, this is one of my favorite uh, passages. It's such a beautiful text. Let's consider this today under uh, three headings. Uh, first, who we were. This is what this text starts with. Second, what God did that changed who we were. And then finally, what we do. So, who we were, what God did, and uh, who, what we do. So first, consider together with me who we were. Uh, the first three verses in chapter 2 describe the condition of someone before they're saved. Uh, maybe we'd best understand this passage and get the sense of it together today if, in a general way, I try to speak for a few minutes to those of you in the room today who are still considering the claims of Christ. So you wouldn't consider yourself um, a Christian. In this way, we would be looking at the text and describing what it says is true about who you are. And those of us in the room who have trusted Christ, this would be who we were. Does that make sense? So the first three verses tell us they address the state that someone is in apart from Christ. Regardless of how much money you have, where you live, what kind of family you're born into, your relative scale of goodness and badness as you might see it, this would describe the state of everyone without Christ. And with that, by way of preface, let's read those three verses together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this text would tell us, a non-Christian in the room, 
that although this may sound rather odd, God says you are a dead man or a dead woman. Clearly, that can't mean physically because you're here. You're breathing. Your heart is pumping. Your brain is still working, at least somewhat early on a Sunday morning. So it must mean something else. And theologically, we understand this to mean that you are dead spiritually, that this immaterial part of you is separated from God. So deep and so wide is this chasm of separation, there's nothing anyone can do to fix it. Reality, irrespective of your feelings about it, reality is that you're spiritually dead. The very things you thought would bring you life actually brought spiritual death. You see, sin always over-promises us what it can give us and under-delivers. That's what sin does. So the very plight of every human being without Jesus Christ is that we're physically alive but spiritually dead. Now, it gets even more strange. Uh, If you look closely at verse 2, it says that the non-Christian is a spiritually dead man or woman walking. We're walking about in everyday life. The word walking in the Bible is often used metaphorically to just describe the daily manner of how we live. So that as we're walking through life, doing the things we do every day, that we're doing those in such a way that we're separated from God, apart from Christ. Daily, the pattern of life apart from God is that we follow the world and the tyrannical ruler of this world, Satan. Now, maybe that conjures up strange images in your mind, things like satanic spells or witchcraft or people dressed in all black, smoking crack, out behind a building, cutting. I think when we sometimes think of satanic things, those are the kinds of images that come to mind, things that seem to be obvious in their great moral evil. And those things happen, no doubt. But Satan's aim mainly is to make us content in this world so that we'll ignore the next. And so what better way to do that than to make us nice, moral, ethical people who trust ourselves and think we don't need God? A friend, perhaps your own relative goodness is blinding you to the fact that apart from Christ, you're spiritually dead. And that makes you and everybody else without Christ a rightful recipient of the wrath of God. You see, the desires that lead us further and further and further away from God spiritually constrain us. And many times these are good things. Things like education or family or productivity, sex. But good things, when they become ultimate things, turn into bad things. And all of us have found ourselves ensnared in things we never thought would consume us. This is what it means to be a human being in a fallen world. Non-Christian, this is who you are. And 
Christians, this is who we were. Spiritually dead, following in a way of ungodliness, spiritually hopeless, spiritually helpless. Over 50 years ago, a guy named Barnhouse, who was a preacher in Philadelphia, described in a sermon, what would things look like if Satan really took control of this city? In his case, he's obviously talking about Philadelphia. I don't know anyone in the room from Philadelphia, so this is not intended to offend you, your homeland. But he asked this question, what, what would Philadelphia look like if Satan really took control of it? And his hypothesis was, was this. He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. Churches where Christ is not preached. The aim of the enemy, or Satan, as he's called, is to convince us that this world is all there is, and it's good enough. And so if you're here today and you've not trusted Christ, don't be fooled by the pleasures of the world. Don't be fooled by the nicety of the things that we have. You are spiritually dead in need of God. Now, what did God do? That's what the next section tells us in verses 4 to 9. It makes a whole list of things. And just listen to a few of them or read the passage for yourself. Here's what God has done for all who are in Christ. Compelled by love and overflowing in mercy, God brought us to life spiritually. By grace, He saved us. He raised us up from the death trap we were in. And He seated us with Christ, past tense, in the heavenlies. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means that all the resources of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, every position and blessing that He has today has already been given to you. It's already something you possess in Him. Isn't that amazing? All the resources that the Son has from the Father have already been given to you in Christ. Now, sure, you've, you've got to work out how those things look in everyday life. That's what the rest of life is for but they're already given to you. So in a very real sense for the Christian, what, what you're doing when you go to God in prayer isn't begging God to do something new, but rather asking Him to help you live out what's already true about you. You see, God the Father, who has unending love for the Son, and therefore for us, has given us favor and love and hope and mercy. It's, it's complete. It's whole. It's already yours. Now, God does all of this, verse 8 says, by His grace. That He's 
rescued us from spiritual death and eternal separation from Him and given us the gift of being right with Him. Imagine for a moment with me that uh, you have committed some great act of treason against the United States or whatever country you're a citizen of. This crime was a crime worthy of death. You knew it. Everybody else knows it. And the punishment that you deserve is death. Your day in court finally arrives, finally arrives and you hear, all arise, as the highest, most revered judge walks into the room. Your treason is recounted, you're found guilty, and the judge sentences you to death. In a way, you are then physically alive, and yet you know death has come. And in a very rare occurrence, the courtroom breaks out in cheers because you've been brought to justice. But then the judge, the one with all authority, the lawkeeper in the room, tells everybody to sit back down. Quit your cheering. And he gets up off the bench comes around to you, takes off his judge's robe and puts it on you. And he says, I'll take your place. You are guilty, but I'll take your guilt upon myself. And not only will you be not guilty, but you'll have my place of righteousness and respect and honor. And then the bailiff cuffs him and walks him away. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? This, this doesn't happen. But it has happened. This is what Jesus did for you. Jesus clothed you with His righteousness. And He took your guilt Upon himself. God gave up his place. Jesus gave up his place of sinless perfection in order to die in our place of condemnation. Jesus bore the punishment we deserved while giving us all the spiritual resources that are his. This is the gospel that we've been singing about together today. It is the, the reason. It is the vehicle, it is the message by which we gather every single week. So may this scandal of God's love of Christ and his gift of himself to us never get old. It's the greatest news of all. And if you're here today and again have not trusted Christ, this is what Christ offers. A, a position of being no longer someone under Condemnation, but a person now at a place of spiritual life, of right relationship with God, of the shackles of sin being broken. And all of this is just offered as a free gift in Christ. We'd love to tell you more about that if you've never trusted 
Jesus. So stick around after and ask somebody around you to tell you more about how you could come to trust in Christ. So this is who we were. This is what God has done. And Paul, the author of Ephesians 2, has said both of those things in order to bring us to this point, in order to tell us what we should do, or rather what we do as Christians. This brings us to verse 10. Before we read it, let me try to set up for a moment why I think this has become a rather scandalous idea, what he tells us in verse 10. This year marks the 500th anniversary of something called the Protestant Reformation. Some of us are familiar with what this means. Uh, Likely some of you know the history better than I do, certainly. But maybe for a few of us it's new. So let me take just a moment to explain. In medieval Europe, the gospel had gotten hijacked by a works-based, church-bestowed view of salvation. So people just like you and me would get up and go to church and hear a message mainly, not of what God had done for them, but what they needed to do for God. In particular, what they needed to do in order to be accepted by Him or to be, in a sense, re-accepted by Him. Theological notions like purgatory, indulgences, penance, words found nowhere in the Bible had become commonplace among church leadership. And practices like confessing your sin to a priest and paying money to the church so that people you loved who had already died could move out of a state of difficulty into a place of ease before God was the main way in which people thought about Christianity. So in a very real sense, church had become a spiritual sham, quite different from the pages of the Scripture. By God's grace, the Protestant Reformation, which was fueled by a recovery of the Bible and, in particular, recovery of the gospel found in the Bible, brought us back to Ephesians 2, which is, by grace you've been saved, not of your own doing, not a result of works, all of this a gift from God. This changed literally everything. The political systems of Europe were overturned. Churches changed. Individuals rescued. And in many ways, the world has never been the same since. As Christianity, back at its roots, was recovered. If you've never read anything about that, I would encourage you to, because it will help your your perspective on what God has done be, it's like Jesus and John the Baptist and then us. That's not how things have happened. There's been lots of people who have gone before us where God has been faithful 
to preserve his church, just like he will be for us and in our future, right? Now, there were five what we might think of as battle cries in the Reformation. And uh, later this summer, we're going to spend a Sunday on each of those in a series we're going to call Solus. But essentially what the Reformation did is recover the gospel from a church world in which it was thought of as what you do for God, not mainly what God has done for you. But I wonder today if something that's happened is that we are so aware of what God has done for us that maybe we've lost sight of because of what God has done for us. Here's what we do as an expression of praise and worship for God. In other words, we want to be so certain that we're not communicating the gospel is what you do, which is completely true, that we miss the result of the gospel, which is, in fact, what we do. Look at verses 8 through 10, if we could try to get a sense of that together. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Crystal clear, you're not saved, you're not made right with God through your actions. But look at 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Friends, salvation is a gift. Paul's imagery couldn't be more striking. You were dead, but God made you alive. Dead people don't make themselves alive. It's impossible. Jesus, who was alive, who is alive, breathed spiritual life into his people, awakening them to faith. So, The only thing you brought, Christian, to your spiritual conversion was your sin, was your deadness. Jesus brought everything else. You you contributed nothing of positive benefit. But why? Why did God save you? Well, this text tells us that you're not saved by your good works but you are, in fact, saved for your good works. Brothers and sisters, we are God's workmanship. We have been given new life in Christ for the purpose of good works. And God prepared those for us beforehand so that we would spend the rest of our lives not walking in the course of the world, but walking in the good things that God has set out for us. Now, workmanship is a rather odd word. I don't hear many of us using that terminology. Some of your translations that you might have with you or on your phone will use the word handiwork or new creation. 
or masterpiece? Behind all those words is the same Greek word used only at this one place in the Scriptures and in one other verse. In Romans 1.20, this word is used to describe what God has made in creation. That God created the world and it displays who He is. And then in Ephesians 2.10, the same word is made, is used to express what God has remade, that what God has created anew in conversion, in us becoming Christians. The, the parallel is rather beautiful, that God made the physical world to display His handiwork, and God remade you to display His handiwork. You see, Christian, through Christ, by God's grace, you are God's masterpiece. You are a trophy of His grace. In the same way, a beautiful sunset or a waterfall or the mountains, whatever it is you find to be beautiful that God has made, in the same way those things display the splendor of God. You, by being changed into Christ's likeness and doing the great works that God has set before you to do, you display His glory, His power, His work. And I get that this is a rather scandalous idea, and it's making some of you, the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You're getting nervous. But God saved you not by your good works, but equally true. He saved you for good works. And so you and I are not to spend our Christian lives piddling around in selfishness, but with our sleeves rolled up, spending our time doing the good things to love God and love people that He sets before us. God saves us so that we would know and enjoy the delight of serving Him because we are His masterpieces. So to sum this all up in just a few words, brothers and sisters, we are saved to serve. Our grace-driven service does lots of things. I just made a list of a few. It helps us grow up in maturity in Christ. It spreads the gospel message to non-Christians. It lifts us up out of the suffocating distractions of daily life and reminds us that, as we sang earlier, we are, in fact, not our own. And it helps us help each other so that all of us would mature in Christ together. So God's plan, I think, is rather brilliant. By us simply doing the things that He gives us in everyday life to do, doing them with an attitude of joy for the betterment of people, then the very reason God saved us fleshes itself out in our daily experience, which helps us all to become more and more Christ-likeness. So if you're not regularly, intentionally, joyfully serving, then Christian, you're missing 
the very heart, according to this passage, of why God has saved you. But if you are growing in Christ-like character and loving people, spending your time in sacrificial service, then this text would say you are walking so closely with your Savior. Now, why is this a particularly important message for us to hear as a church? Why are we plopping down in the middle of a book instead of working our way through a whole book? Well, it's because uh, we, as Tad is going to talk about in just a few minutes, are just weeks away from beginning a second gathering as a church. And that means there's going to be a lot more opportunities to serve. But at the end of the day, these increased opportunities uh, to serve aren't mainly about getting jobs done. They're not about mainly about filling slots with warm bodies so that church jobs can get accomplished. They're instead mainly about us together experiencing what God has saved us for. And so as we spend lots of time in the coming weeks talking together about what the needs are, we wanted to frame that with its theological importance. That, that mainly this isn't about the accomplishment of duties, but the joy of serving. You see, one of the best things about moving to two gatherings this fall will be increased opportunities to start your week off every Sunday with great opportunities to serve. You see, this is part of the very aim of our salvation. And so more opportunities will mean more people. Both will be served by us, and we will have the opportunity to serve. When you came in, you were hopefully given a sheet that looks like this. It says at the top, um, serving at Church on Mill. And would you pull that out for a moment? You'll find the verses we just read together listed at the top. And then underneath those, in that orange color, three categories of areas of service. Family ministries, worship gathering ministries, and fellowship team ministries. And then underneath those, there are particular um, realms of needs where you could express interest in serving in the church coming up. Then below that, you'll see next steps. And let me just read that uh, first two sentences, those first two sentences to us. It says, this fall, we need 114 people to serve on a rotation in these roles as we transition to two gatherings. All service roles are a one-year commitment. Let me try to explain that as that might be causing fear and panic. Um, we are trying to think about what are, the, what are strategies through which the most members could be offered opportunities to formally serve in the church, and yet that could be done in such a way that every week, there's not 25 people doing 200 things. That it's dispersed among all of us that call this church family home. And so what we've tried to do is think about if 
every member of Church on Mill would commit to three hours every Sunday morning. So 9.30 to 12.30. If you would commit weekly to that block of time, then you will have opportunity to some weeks be serving in a ministry that fits who you are and how you've been gifted. And then other weeks, you would rotate out of that area of service into an opportunity to go to a connection class in which you're simply getting to know people and getting good spiritual content. And then every week, you would have opportunity to come to a worship gathering. Because we'll be able to offer two worship gatherings, that will make it much easier for more people to serve because you won't have to be choosing either to come and worship in this room or serve. You'll be able to do both. If that's massively confusing, then it's my fault because I didn't explain it well. But the simple idea here is, would you prayerfully consider what is something or one of these areas that you might want to get more interest in? And maybe before you even leave the room today, you would email this email address, serve at churchonmill.org, or text this number, 480-331-7180, and simply say, tell me more about this category. I'm interested in potentially taking on a service role starting June, August. Thank you. You can tell why I'm not the details person around here. I've been stumbling the whole morning. Friends, this kind of stuff makes me nervous. Because when people think about Church on Mill, what I hope they think of is not, here's my duty that I fulfill on a six-week basis, and then they leave me alone. The, the kinds of seasons we're about to enter as a church can very quickly degenerate into that. Because we're going to have to talk about, here's the needs, and this week, 60 of those are filled. So that means there's 54, did I do that right? Left. And by necessity, we'll have to have those kind of conversations. And yet, the, the duties of the roles isn't the point. Christians loving Christ publicly identifying with Him in what He has done for us by us serving is the point. And the result of that will be, as we roll up our sleeves together and serve, that people we have yet to meet, we don't know their names, we haven't seen their faces, will be the recipients of ministry communicating the gospel to them. And this room will gradually be filled with more and more people who have come to know Christ. That's what Church on Mill is for. And so, even as we're thinking about these 114 unique positions in which we hope 114 people will fill them so that the load is distributed, so that we all have the joy of serving. As we emphasize that, let's remember what's behind it. 
There is a king who gave himself for people who did not deserve it in order that we could be brought into his kingdom and experience the privilege of being used by him. This is why God has saved us. So let's serve. We've been saved to serve. Amen? Tad, would you come pray for us about that and then uh, walk us through a few more things before we leave? All right. Father, we uh, thank you that our salvation is not dependent on anything that we would do, that uh, it's not about us, that there's nothing we can boast about, that there's nothing different about me because I'm a believer um, in Jesus uh, than somebody else who isn't, but God, that it's only about you. So we thank you that all of life is about you. I thank you that we can boast in what you have done for us on the cross. God, we uh, want to be servants. We want to give back um, what you have given to us. You have served us. You have given everything for us. And so as part of that, we want to reflect that. We want to, to um, give back to you and to our church family the things that you have given to us. So God, we pray that we would hear the message this morning, that we would desire to um, glorify you, to make much of you, to honor you in all things. I pray that you would uh, just speak to us individually and that we would seek to, um, both in our service here and in other ways, to, to, to glorify you and to make your name great. God, thank you for the service, for this time together. Pray for the offering as, as uh, the ushers will take it here in just a moment, that you would use those, um, those gifts to, again, to bring glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, thank you, Pastor Chuck. Uh, ushers, please come forward and take up the offering. And um, as Pastor Chuck mentioned, uh, stick around after the service. And I'm sure that he and others would love to tell you, uh, myself too, would love to tell you more about uh, this Jesus that we've been talking about and how we can uh, come to have a personal relationship with him. Wanted to uh, take a moment. Um, yeah, as the ushers come forward, please uh, put your offerings in there, as well as uh, guests, please put the guest information card in there as well. We'd love to, to know you better. Um, so as Chuck mentioned, we are adding a second worship gathering on beginning August 6th. And we are doing this because it, it may be hard to, to see here in the summer, and particularly on a holiday weekend, but our service is full, our gathering is full, and God continues to bring people to us, and we want to be good stewards of the location here next to ASU in this downtown area, and also to um, be able to give more opportunities for people to, to get to come to know Christ. So we, we're adding a second gathering like that, and you wouldn't be able to tell from, from looking at me, but I'm really excited about this. I'm, I'm excited that, yes, so I'm, I'm excited that uh, when I think about 20 years from now, Lord willing, that God would, would allow us to look back, allow me to look back and see that because we added a second gathering, because we, we sacrificed a little bit more, served, gave more, that God brought more people to hear the gospel, that God was uh, used Church on Mill to save more people, that, that we were able to send people to help plant churches here in the valley and across the world, 
that is really encouraging to me, really exciting to me. So that's, that's why we're doing this. That's why we want to do this. So uh, Chuck mentioned the serving at Church on Mill, this, this sheet. I think he explained it uh, fairly well. This is confusing. Um, so if you have questions about this, then please talk to me or to somebody around you. We, we love to walk you through this and help you understand. Uh, there are 114, as Chuck said, unique um, opportunities to serve. That's not every Sunday, but on a rotating basis, we need 114 people. So around 50 or 60 people every Sunday to be doing some act of service. So uh, as Chuck mentioned, there's, there's as, as you'll see, family ministries area. There's several that are involved there. Uh, there's uh, in the worship gathering, fellowship, greeters, ushers, lots of opportunities for us to be able to uh, experience what God has saved us for by serving him. Um, there are people that are leading these teams that, that will be contacting you. So if you haven't already been contacted, we're, we're going to be contacting you to, to give you that opportunity to serve. So uh, please talk with them and listen to them and pray about what God would have you to do. We will need everybody in the church family, every, every member, uh, pulling in the same direction so that we can be successful this as we, as we launch our second gathering beginning August 6th. So serve at churchonmail.org or the text, text that number, or talk with, with me or with somebody else uh, here up at the front or around you. We would love to, to shepherd you and care for you as, you as you try to understand this, as you try to walk through this. So really excited about that. That's 10 weeks away. We would love to have uh, these uh, positions filled uh, soon so that we can spend most of our time the rest of the summer praying and spending time just being encouraged by what God is doing. So we're going to have 40 days of prayer leading up to this. We'll, you'll hear more about that in late June as we, as we head into that. So please do uh, even now be praying about where you can serve. All right? Let's stand and let's be sent out by the reading of God's word. And this is from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.